Hello, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would talk about family of origin therapy. In a previous episode, I talked about how I would talk about this, and some patrons were asking me to talk about it. So here we go. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Coupland Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Today, I'm going to talk about family of origin therapy. I'm going to talk about the history of family of origin therapy. I'm going to talk about the theory involved. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about my own experiences, mainly in teaching family of origin therapy to other family therapists. In my program, we walk our students through a version of family of origin therapy for themselves. We help them apply the theory to their own life as a way of helping them differentiate and helping them become more effective, more differentiated therapists themselves. I also will talk about my experience working with clients regarding family of origin therapy. Today's episode is a premium episode. In other words, it's a it's an episode that is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, you will not be hearing the rest of the episode. <laughs> Sorry to tell you that. <laughs> it kind of sounds like I'm being a dick, but honestly, it's one of the benefits of becoming a patron. If you're a patron, you get access to all the episodes without any advertisements on our premium feed. So please become a patron by going to patreon.com and click on the button to become a patron. <laughs> you go to the Psychology in Seattle Patreon page, become a patron, and then I send you a, uh, instructions on how to access the premium feed, and then we're good to go. Also know that a portion of, our, uh, of, the, of your monthly pledge will go towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. That's super cool of you. All right, family of origin therapy, what can we say? Well, it has a number of different names in the literature. Some draw a distinction between these different names, like so family of origin therapy is one word, or transgenerational therapy, or intergenerational therapy. Basically, it's a form of therapy that focuses on adults and their families of origin. So a family of origin is your parents, your siblings that you grew up with. This is your family of origin. And the uh, these forms of therapy generally focus on adult children. So, you know, you're 25, you're 45, you're 65. Uh, you're an adult child, if that makes any sense. And, and their families of origin. And it can involve your family members or it can not involve them. It can involve them from the beginning, or it might introduce them later on in the therapy. And I'll get more into the specifics of different models of family of origin therapy in a second. Basically, the overall push or the overall goal in family of origin therapy is to move toward differentiation and autonomy. It's the movement of uh, defusing yourself or becoming unenmeshed or unfused from your family of origin in which you're free to be who you are and you're no longer tied or you no longer have a, a you know ball and chain 
that's tying you down in terms of the, the unfinished business uh, from your family of origin, which I'll get into more in a second. Uh, another way of putting it is basically you're trying to rework the family patterns. So some people might say, oh, okay, so family of origin work just means drawing boundaries and distancing yourself from your family. No, that's not what it means. It means actually trying to rework the family patterns staying while staying engaged with them and changing the ways in which the adult child interacts with the family, the way that the system actually operates. And uh, all of these efforts are not just an academic thing like, oh, I just want to be differentiated. It actually often carries with it a number of different concrete goals that people come to therapy for, like depression or anxiety or relationship issues, like everyone I date is distant or everyone I date is crazy. Well, maybe doing some family of origin work will actually help solve that problem. Self-esteem problems, meaninglessness in your family, worthlessness in your, in your, or sorry, meaninglessness in your own life, worthlessness in your mood and all the other various general things that people come to therapy for. Family of origin work is meant to address that. For example, just to ground this in an example, a number of years ago, a client came to me suffering from feeling very distant from everybody, feeling as though she was alone, she was isolated. And she found that she might actually be actively distancing herself from people as a way of protecting yourself. And we did a number of different things to see if we could fix that for her, and it wasn't really working. And so I introduced the idea of family of origin therapy to her, and I said, maybe if we do some family of origin work, it, it will change. And so we engaged in family of origin therapy, and over, I don't know, the span of six months to a year, she was able to see some really significant changes in the way in which her family of origin system operated, but also in the way that she felt about herself and the way that she uh, interacted with other people and the way that she trusted other people and the way that she reached out to other people in a more balanced way. And so there's this very strange connection that's not logical to me between the way in which your current family of origin system operates with you included and the way in which you feel about yourself and the way in which you interact with other people in your life. There are, are definite correlations, and uh, which I'll get into more in a second. Okay, so that's, that's general family of origin therapy. So that version of family of origin therapy, I only talked with her and I never met with her parents. But other times, as a family therapist, I'll say, hey, down the road, let's, let's, let's invite your family of origin into the session and let's make this intentional. And again, I'll explain that more in a second. Okay, so let's talk about the history of family of origin therapy. Many would say that the, the grandfather, if you will, of family of origin therapy is Ronald Fairburn. He was a, uh, a psychoanalyst who lived in Scotland. He was Scottish. And he was prominent in the 40s, 50s-ish times. And uh, he's one of the very first object relations people. And 
he, although a firm Freudian as pretty much anyone was back then in psychotherapy, he criticized Freud, as did a lot of the object relationists did. He criticized Freud and all the various Freudians who were dominating the field at the time. He criticized all them, which was, you know, a, a suicidal uh, uh, um, career move in some ways. But anyway, he, he criticized Freud for not emphasizing the parent-child relationship enough. Melanie Klein was doing this as well. But Fairburn really took it to another level. His writing, I've read, is very dense and difficult to understand because he uses all this super technical language that was only known to psychoanalysts at the time. <laughs> but in a nutshell, he, Ronald Fairburn believed that we internalize our relationships with our parents. We internalize the relationships we have with our parents as children. We internalize those experiences. And this was a, a genius notion. It was Freudian in a sense, but Fairburn really took it to another level and really said, this is the core of the human experience is those early object relationships. You know, object relations is just is a funny terms, funny term. It's like object relations. What object is just another word for parents or caregivers or family members. So an object can be anything that you interact with, shall we say, but your most significant objects are your parents. And so object relations is really just another term for parent relations. And so these, these psychoanalysts were extremely interested in the relationships that kids had, you know, infants had and young children had with their parents. He believed that these internalized relationships, which he called interjects, but I won't get into that, but these, these internalized relationships into the psyche become the basis for our adult personalities and our adult problems which is just a genius idea, which is why when I was just a couple years into this profession, I considered myself an object relations person. It was the theory that made the most sense, that made the most sense to me. Later, I would realize that a lot of psychodynamic theory actually would make sense to me. And I have since endeavored to uh, integrate both the parts of object relations and psychodynamic theory that I enjoy with systems theory. I also incorporate cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, uh, solution focused narrative, all the postmoderns collaboratives, but anyway, all right. So Ronald Fairburn, 1940s, 1950s, Scottish psychoanalyst breaks from the psychoanalyst notion, uh, the Freudian, classical notion and start saying, no, you know, it's not about, it's not about drives. It's not about defense mechanisms. It's really just about your relationship with your parents, which many people believe today. And, and it's just funny to think at a time when it was controversial to say that. Right. But anyway, okay. Let's go. So skipping forward just shortly to the fifties. So Bowen, uh, to some extent overlapped with Fairburn, but Murray Bowen comes along, another psychoanalyst, and he starts uh, breaking free of psychoanalysis himself. But he really breaks free. He's he he, you know, Fairburn considered himself a psychoanalyst and considered himself loyal to Freud, even though he was criticizing part of Freud's theory. 
Bowen really just said, no, I reject the whole damn thing and I'm developing my own theory. And so he did that. He's one of the only family therapists who really developed a fully fledged theory. Uh, Naj was another one, but Bowen is really the most famous family therapy systems theory that uh, is the most developed. And it's very complicated. And I've done, I think, a a four or three or four hour episode that's for patrons only. And many of you have probably heard that, but just to uh, somewhat briefly summarize the two main concepts as it relates to family of origin therapy, the two main concepts, differentiation and detriangulation. So I'm going to talk about them just briefly here. So differentiation, Murray Bowen's theory on differentiation. This is his most famous concept Basically, if someone is differentiated, they can do two different things well. They can differentiate between their emotional guidance system and their reasoning guidance system. This allows them to choose to be guided by either system. And this is important to understand. So, if he, you know, he believed that in a nutshell, in our brain, we have two different main guidance systems to our behavior we have our emotions and we have our intellect or our reasoning. We have like our, our rational side and we have our emotional side. And he was, particularly his followers were sure to point out that neither one is better than the other. That in some instances, you really want to be guided by your intellect. You know, your teacher is, is hurt. You know, your teacher hurt your feelings and you want to spit in her face. Well, you're, Emotions are telling you to spit in your face, but your reason, your reasoning and rational side is saying that's not a good idea. So you don't spit in her face. So that's an example of, of differentiation. But in the reverse, you can imagine a time when your heart is telling you to tell someone that you love them. You have this big desire to just tell, tell your, your romantic partner, I love you. But your intellect is saying, there's really no point in that. What's the point? <laughs> you know, there's, there's no rational reason to do that. Okay. In those instances, you want to go with your heart because that will be pro-social. It's going to help. It's sort of a bad example, but I, I hope you get my uh, gist here. So to be differentiated, you can differentiate between reasoning and emotion. Another thing you can differentiate between is between yourself and other people. Basically, well-differentiated, highly-differentiated people, they don't get wrapped up in other people's emotions. And they can be intimate with other people while also remaining separate and individuated, meaning that they have a firm grasp on who they are. And they don't get too wrapped up in trying to please other people at the same time as actually staying connected to people in a way that's intentional. So um, uh, as further description of um, higher levels of differentiation. These people generally have less emotional reactivity. They, ha they might have emotions, but they, but they are less overtaken by their emotions. They have the ability to calm themselves. They can make thoughtful and intentional decisions. They don't give in to pressure from others and they have more fulfilling relationships in general. Whereas people at lower levels of differentiation are more emotionally reactive. They have difficulty engaging in thoughtful behavior, have difficulty saying no to people, are more critical and judgmental of other people, are overly concerned about approval, are more dependent, 
and they tend to repeat problematic relationships rather than learning from their mistakes. Bowen rated people on a scale, a differentiation scale, from 1 to 100, with 100 being completely differentiated and 1 being completely fused or undifferentiated. Bowen believed that most people stay at the differentiation level that they had when they left home. So whenever you left your house as a young adult, your differentiation level, according to Bowen, remains basically fixed. And he also believed that very rarely does someone leave the home at a differentiation level higher than 60. So he believed that the vast majority of people had mid-level or low-level differentiation levels. Also, he said that we tend to choose spouses and friends with similar differentiation levels. So if we left the house with a 50, then we'll marry someone with a 50. He also believed that your differentiation level is relatively fixed for life. However, your differentiation level will diverge from your baseline depending on your current stress level and the coping skills that you employ in the moment. Bowen believed you can slowly, very slowly raise your baseline differentiation level by managing your emotional reactivity and by detriangulating yourself from your family of origin, particularly your parents. Okay, so before we move on, we have to we have to talk about what detriangulation is or triangulation. Aside from differentiation, triangulation was Bowen's other most famous concept. Bowen believed that when two people experience relational tension, they tend to pull in a party, a third party, to, dis- to dissipate that tension. Some, some examples that I came up with of typical triangles are a conflictual married couple focuses on a child to avoid their marital conflict. So we see a triangle there. Another one, two people meet for the first time and to alleviate their nervousness, they talk about the weather or they talk about sports. So these two people have a little bit of tension and they triangulate the weather in order to provide some stability. A wife complains to her therapist about her husband. So we have a triangle there, therapist, wife, husband. During a marital conflict, a child misbehaves to distract the parents from their fighting. So we have the parents and the child. So those are just some very, very common, typical examples of triangles. Bowen believed that particular triangles become fixed over time in families and act predictably to alleviate stress and anxiety in the system. So he believed that we all should endeavor, but mainly therapists, to do family of origin work. And one of the main cornerstones of family of origin work for Bowen was to detriangulate yourself from particularly dysfunctional triangles. And so say, for instance, your parents always pull you into their problems or your sister and your mother uh, pull you into their problem or you and your mother pull in your father into your problems or something. There's, there's these triangles. If you, if you, if, if you're in a problematic family of origin, will create further undifferentiation, further fusion, and further suffering for everybody. So he said, you have to detriangulate from dysfunctional triangles by being as differentiated as possible when you're engaged with a triangle. So just as an example, 
you and your mom tend to complain about your dad a lot. And what's really happening here is, in all likelihood, is that you and your mom feel some insecurity about your relationship and therefore find a scapegoat to attack to bring the two of you closer together. So if you two are, if you two are banded together against your dad, then, it, then you have some closeness between the two of you. But at what cost? Because now your dad's alienated and you know, the, the marital relationship isn't going so well. Your relationship with your dad isn't going so well. So uh, a good way to try to improve your family, improve your, the system, is when you're interacting in that triangle. So your mom comes to you and says, hey, you know, dad did this other stupid thing. You wouldn't believe what he did. Instead of just playing along in the normal routine, you say, oh, he, he did what? Well, yeah, he did. Oh, okay. Hey, dad, did you know that mom didn't like it when you did X, Y, and Z? So in this way, you're detriangulating yourself. So instead of you just listening to your mom and then saying, oh my God, I got to tell you about another thing that dad did. And the two of you are just talking and behind his back and talking shit about him. Instead, and this is what Bowen actually did with his family, you could just turn around and go to your dad and say, hey, did you know that when mom, when you did that to mom, it actually bothered her? You know, I don't know if you knew that. Well, your mom is not going to tell you things anymore <laughs> if you do that. And therefore, you're, you're breaking the, the, the triangle. Um, it's, it's much more complicated than that, of course, but that's just a rough example. So you want to be as differentiated as possible, meaning you want to try to be as thoughtful as possible. You want to be as non-emotionally reactive as possible. You want to think with your intentions and figure out what you want to do with uh, the situation. You want to be as calm and as cool as possible. You want to not take sides when you're asked to participate in a triangle. You want to not become emotionally reactive or upset, or you can make it functional as a triangle by helping the dyad resolve their problems. So in the example of me and my mom have some tension and so we as a routine will band together and make fun of my dad. Well, in or, uh, a sort of superior way of detriangulating is maybe me and my mom can bond over something that doesn't create a scapegoat. Maybe my mom and my dad need some more quality time together and uh, maybe that will help them not feel that tension between them. Maybe I need more quality time with my dad. And so these are ways of detriangulating as well. So in an attempt uh, to test this theory, Bowen worked hard to differentiate from his own family of origin and, and really did his own version of family of origin work, which he described in his famous anonymous paper published in 1972. In this paper, he describes how he differentiated from his family of origin by remaining very calm and non-defensive with them or as calm and non-defensive as possible with them. And he detriangulated from his parents who would often confide in him about the other parent. He also established emotional connectedness by having one-on-one -on -one contact with each family member instead of just spending his time in the, in a group format. He had a number of siblings and all of his siblings had spouses and everyone had children. And so when there were these family get togethers, it was this kind of chaotic mess. 
And so, and there were all these triangles happening all the time. And he observed this and he said, you know what, maybe if I just had one-on-one time with everybody, it will help me to detriangulate and help to increase connectedness and increase uh, intimacy, which he found actually worked. And he gained insight through this process into how family systems operate. He found that this process increased his overall differentiation level, and he was able to be less reactive with everyone in his life. So not only, so, so when he managed to change his system and change his differentiation routines with regards to his family of origin, he found that that skill set uh, generalized to everyone in his life, not just his family of origin. That's the magic of family of origin therapy is that by changing the configuration and your place in that configuration of your family of origin, even if you're 45 years old, according to anecdotal evidence and a lot of theory, will those changes will generalize to everyone in your life and you don't have to do anything with those other people. So for instance, say you find yourself feeling really insecure with your spouse or with your friends. Well, by going down a path of differentiation with your family of origin, the idea is, is that you will find yourself just naturally feeling less insecure with your spouse and with your friends, even though you didn't actually do anything active regarding the therapy regarding your fam- regarding your friends and your spouse. Does that make sense? Okay. So as a result of his campaign uh, to differentiate and detriangulate from his family of origin, Murray Bowen found that not only was he less reactive with everyone else in his life, but he also found that he was a better therapist as a result. And so he was a key figure in in beginning the tradition in having family therapists work to differentiate themselves from their family of origin as a way of not only improving their life, but also as a way of making them better therapists. Okay. So another major figure in the history of family of origin work is Framo. He developed a detailed model of family of origin therapy, which I won't go into right now for the sake of time. Also, Naj. Naj was very concerned with transgenerational family therapy and family of origin work, which, again, I won't go into right now for the sake of time. The, the last figure I want to talk about is Donald Williamson. I think he eventually, he taught in a number of different places, but he eventually taught in, uh, I think in Bastyr, which is in Kirkland near Seattle. I'm not sure though, uh, but I'm pretty sure he taught there for a number of years. If not, he, maybe he still does. And he developed a, uh, so on the, you know, he, he was, he's piggybacking on Framo, on Naj, on Fairburn, on Bowen, and in the, I think, 90s-ish time, uh, yeah, 1991, he published a book called The Intimacy Paradox, and it was a uh, sort of standard reading at the time in the 90s for family of origin work because he writes in this very understandable way, and he proposes a very specific family of origin therapy model, which I'll describe because I think it's interesting. He, it was a, it was a group therapy model and I often will use a modified version of this. Other family of origin 
prescription, family of origin therapy prescriptions are not very specific. Whereas Donald Williamson actually provides a framework of understanding what family of origin therapy can look like. And like I said, I often will modify it pretty severely, but I, I keep the main kind of tenets and will apply it to my clients and found that it actually works. Instead of differentiation, he actually changed it to personal authority in the family system. <laughs> so it's kind of a long term. And so instead of writing about differentiation in his book, he would, so instead of striving for differentiation, he would say what you should be striving for is personal authority. And basically it's a synthesis of differentiation and intimacy having both at the same time. That's what he means by the intimacy paradox is how can he have both? How can he be differentiated and separate and also be intimate and close at the same time? This is the intimacy paradox. Now, Boenians would say differentiation actually includes intimacy. So to say personal authority includes differentiation and intimacy implies that differentiation doesn't include intimacy. And so, uh, you know, there's that debate, but whatever. And uh, for more information on that, listen to the three and a half hour. I think I think it was somewhere around there episode on pointy in theory. Okay, so Donald Williamson believed that personal authority or differentiation, use whatever word you want, that personal authority or differentiation is achieved by one hearing each of your parents' life stories. I'm just going to run through the numbers and then I'll go back and explain. So number one, hearing each of your parents' life stories. Two, uh, when you hear their life stories, it demystifies and humanizes the parent. Three, this humanization reduces intergenerational intimidation. Number four, which in turn leads to psychological and interactional adjustments that terminate the hierarchical boundary. I know I realize there's a lot of jargon here. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Number five, which is followed by remythologizing the parents as acceptable peers. Intimacy and understanding can be established with the parents. And number six, uh, which eventually leads to psychological maturity and personal authority. The, this, these six steps can take many years, by the way. It's not something you do overnight. It's something that takes a long time. So without going into too much detail on the terminology, essentially what Donald Williamson is saying is when you approach your parents from a non-judgmental stance and really, really hear their life story and really um, elicit the truth of their story to you, not the parent version. You know, when your 10 year old comes to you and says, mommy, daddy, you know, what was it like when you were in high school? You know, you don't say, oh, let me tell you, man, boy, was I a slut. And boy, did I drink a lot of, you know, of the, of the alcohol. And did I smoke a lot of the pot? You know, like you don't say that, right? You, you say, oh, you know, I was like, you know, I was a good kid. You know, you tell, you tell a version to your, uh, of your life to your kid that you want them to hear. <laughs> well, there comes a time when it actually really benefits children to hear the genuine story of, an, of, a, of a parent's life. Now, there are debates about this, but um, 
But in general, that's what Donald Williamson is saying. And I have, I've actually seen a lot of power in this. It's something that a lot of families don't do. A lot of parents will stay parents until the day they die. Uh, meaning that they'll always treat their kids like, like their kids are children and they'll never be real with their kids. But Donald Williamson says one of the major steps in, be, in becoming differentiated is you have to hear your parents' real story because what this does is it humanizes your parents. And in your mind, it makes them real human beings, which in turn uh, changes your life story, essentially. Because if you don't humanize your parents, you'll always see them as having authority over you, is the idea. And until you realize that your parents are just other human beings who just happen to be older than you and happen to have raised you and, and you happen to have idolized and idealized them when you were a kid until you realize, Oh, they're actually just other human beings, you know, with just as many flaws as anyone else. When you realize that you realize, Oh, I'm at the top of the food chain. Now I can no longer have a fantasy. Donald Williamson didn't use this language, but I'm dipping into some psychodynamic language, but Essentially, you grow up and you say, I no longer have a fantasy that my parents can save me. I no longer have a fantasy that I can blame things on my parents. I have to take personal authority and say, this is my life now. I am in charge of my life. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be independent. This doesn't mean that you, you can't ask for favors. It doesn't mean that you can't depend on others for help and love and support. But what it does mean is you realize that you are an adult for real. And it takes a long time. And for those of you that have already been conscious of this process, everyone has at least a little bit of this, right? If not a lot of it. You suddenly start seeing your parents not as the way you saw them when you were five and 10 years old, but you start seeing, wait, they, they have flaws and they're insecure and they don't know what they're doing. When you're five and you have, you know, good enough parents, you see them as just invincible. I remember thinking of my parents as just being absolutely invincible. I remember going to the store. I, I feel like I went to the store a lot with my mom. <laughs> my mom was raising four kids and I felt like she was always at the grocery store <laughs> and I just remember she would, you know, she'd walk in that store and people would say hello to her and she'd say, she always knew what to say. And then she always knew what aisle to go down and she would grab the, (laughs) I have to go on a side note here for a second. I grew up in Sammamish, which was called Issaquah at the time. And there was one grocery store or maybe two, but the grocery store we went to, I think it was called Hilo, if I'm not mistaken. It was basically, even though we're just like 15 minutes from Seattle, Issaquah was basically like a farm town. And this grocery store was so podunk that you had to write the price of things on food yourself. So (laughs) it was just a normal grocery store, like like a smaller... Safeway or something or a smaller Kroger or QFC and you would walk in and, and they didn't have carts. They had just these like flatbed carts, if that makes any sense. You know, the kind you see at like Home Depot and stuff. And I would sit on it 
naturally. And uh, we'd go by the bakery and I'd get a, a peanut butter cookie, the kind with the fork, uh, you know, presses in it. <laughs> and then she would go up and down the aisle and then, you know, she'd get like a, a can of, of chili. And then she had a grease pencil, a black grease pencil, and she would look at the price uh, that was on the display and she would write the price physically on the can. And then when she got to the register, the register person would pick up the can, look at the price and enter the price by hand. Cause this is before, you know, the, the barcode stuff. And <laughs> I just think about the way we do things now and how different it is now. <laughs> but anyway, I would look at my mom in that situation. She would write a check for things. She just pull out that, that purse thing of hers and she would write in her perfect, which it is still is perfect, um, cursive handwriting. She would write a check for $150, just, you know, rip it off, hand it over. And like, man, my mom can do anything. She, she, I don't even understand checks like checks. You could just write a check and they just give you stuff. I mean, uh, you know, I saw, I remember, I re, I have a very uh, pr- good memory compared to other people of my early childhood. I remember being two. I remember, I have memories of when I was very young. And so I remember completely idealizing and idolizing and thinking my parents were just these gods. Now, later on, I slowly started realizing that they weren't gods, but we never fully realize that they're not gods. It's just, it, that stays with us. But what Donald Williamson is saying is until we realize that our parents are a hundred percent human, we will not ever achieve full personal authority or differentiation. And the way that you humanize your parents is by hearing their stories and by listening to them, which in turn uh, you, so what he would say is you don't want to just, um, you know, crash and burn your idea of your parents and like throw it in the garbage. What you want to do is you want to replace it with a new narrative of who they are. When I was five, I saw them in a, my parents in a particular way. And as an adult, I don't want to just throw that away. I want to write a new narrative of who they are that incorporates what I do know of them. And I'll get more into that in a second. And that this process, which can take a long time, eventually leads to psychological maturity, differentiation, and personal authority. So let's get into Donald Williamson's actual therapy technique. It's broken up into four different phases. The first phase, each phase is about two to three months. So the full therapy regimen is between eight and 12 months. So the first phase, again, two to three months, and this is all group therapy. So you might have six people, six different clients in the group. The clients write an autobiography. They, they sit down in their free time and write, you know, a full autobiography of their story. And, you know, it should be detailed, but it should be, short enough that they can actually write it in a couple weeks or something. Now, this is no small task, believe me. Uh, I, in my program, will have 
our first quarter students do this. We um, have a class called Family of Origin Systems, and in that class, the main assignments involve the students doing their own family of origin work on themselves. We teach them the theory and the papers all involve this. And one of the things that they do is they write an autobiography. And in a sense, we don't call it an autobiography, but they write, I, in my class, I have a kind of modified version of the assignment, but I have them write an autobiography that, that begins with their grandparents and then progresses to their parents when their parents were children and then progresses to when their parents met and then progresses to, you know, when they were born and then progresses to their relationship with their siblings. And then the the story ends when they're about 20 years old. That's about as much as I need to read about. And uh, then the second paper they write in the, in the course is about how all that relates to their current uh, personality, pros and cons. And so in Williamson's personal authority in the family system therapy model, in the first phase, this is the first thing you do is you sit down and you, water, you write an autobiography. This essentially provides the kind of lay of the land. It provides a, a kind of map upon which everything else is based. But it also is very emotional. It's a very emotional process for a lot of people. If you were abused or if you have, you know, disappointment feelings uh, from your family and you have to write about this, it's very painful. And in the family of origin class at Antioch, it, it carries with it for a lot of people, a lot of pain, but it's no pain, no gain when it comes to this sort of thing. In order to be an effective therapist, you have to be accustomed to facing that pain. And it depends on the situation. I mean, if you have PTSD, then that has to be dealt with in a careful way as to not re-traumatize you. But if you don't have PTSD, it, it can still be very painful, but it's not re-traumatizing. And so facing all that is imperative as a clinician. Is the family of origin class going to solve all that for the rest of your life? No, it just provides people the beginning to uh, a lifelong process of facing that. As a therapist, you have to face your issues which has a lot to do with your family of origin and you have to wrestle with it and you have to know it. And so writing that autobiography is the first step for these clients. During this first phase, Donald Williamson would also ask people to examine and explore present and historical uh, issues of their relationships with their parents. So they write an autobiography and they also, you know, examine and explore the issues that they have with their parents, both present and past. So they're, you know, they're thinking about that and they're writing about that and they talk about that in the group therapy. Also a major element, very important element of this first phase is that the group members are encouraged to express all of their intense negative emotions as a way of, of getting support around that and, and as a way of letting go because the rest of the therapy requires that the client have some level of catharsis, have some level of, of balance regarding the emotions that might be pent up. Essentially, Donald Williamson, I think in his experimentation with his model of therapy with people, he would find that many people needed to have that 
uh, emotional expression witnessed and taken care of by group members and by therapists in order to move on with the model. And so uh, he considered this an important part of phase one, and he would encourage this in his clients. Okay, phase two. Again, another two or three months. In this phase, the clients obtain information on their family history. So they actually start interviewing their family. They call their parents on the phone. They visit their parents. They write letters. They might email their parents. And they start gathering information from everyone, their parents, their siblings, their aunts. Their they just start interviewing everyone. I, you know, they say, I want to know as much information as possible. And the, the way that this is done is by making sure that everyone understands you are not attacking them and you're not digging for dirt. You are merely curious because you really want to know what, you know, what everyone's perspective is, or you really want to know your story and you're trying to get all this information. You know, you go to your aunt and you say, what was I like as a kid? And she'll say, oh, you know, you're really like this. And they say, yeah. Did I ever bother you? Was I ever annoying to you? You know, I'm really, I'm really open to just hearing. I really want to know everything. Tell me the whole story, you know. So this can be also very difficult for some people. It's, it can't, you know, it could be very painful to hear, it, you say your parents divorced and your aunt tells you about the fighting that your parents went through. You know, that it's not going to be pleasant. So this doesn't, this isn't just an intellectual exercise. It can involve a lot of emotional pain that the client goes through with the support of the group and the therapist. But anyway, phase two is gathering information from a non-judgmental stance and really trying to have empathy for everyone and just, you know, Oh man, that must've been tough for you. And you know, you're, you're trying to be a, a nice person. And because if you're not, no one's going to talk to you, essentially. If you come at them like, so I'm in therapy and I'm trying to figure out why I'm so fucked up and I'm pretty sure it's because of the way you raised me. So can you tell me more about the way you raised me? You know, parents aren't going to talk about it. What Williamson would often bump into and what I often bump into with people is they'll say, well, my parents, they don't want to talk with me. My parents, they're really, you know, they're really closed. And what Williamson would say to people and what I will say to people, uh, in maybe not as firmly as Williamson did, but, but what I'll say to people is, well, your parents, the only reason why they're being, uh, reserved with you is because they think you're up to no good. If you start asking a lot of questions, they, they start to get suspicious because when someone starts asking questions, it usually means that, some sort of judgment or some sort of attack is around the corner. And so you might have to go on a campaign for a long time. Maybe it takes longer than two to three months. Maybe it takes a couple of years where you slowly convince through your behavior that you are not up to no good, that you are actually up to good and you are curious. Once your parents truly understand that in their bones, the idea is, is that they will love to talk to you because parents are desperate to tell you their story. They want you to know what happened. They want you to know what their life was like. They want to share their life with you. And 
for a number of reasons. They want you to carry on the family tradition. They want to know what you went, what they went through. They want to know how they want you to know how much they sacrificed in some ways. Now, this can be very complicated because for some families, some kids already know too much about their parents' lives. And so this can be a very complicated thing for some people. And again, it requires a lot of understanding and nuance and modification on, on behalf of the client, the group, and the therapist. And so it's not it's a lot easier said than done for some people. So again, first phase, you are writing your story. You're thinking about things just by yourself. You're not talking with your family yet. And you're expressing a lot of intense emotions. And this can be a very powerful phase. Phase two is you're convincing everyone that you're, you're up, you know, you have good intentions and you're asking for stories. Tell me your story. Tell me more. What happened? What was it like for you? And you're really trying to get the genuine story, not the version that they tell their children, but the real story. Third phase. This is the phase where you start actually taking some serious action. In this phase, in the group format, the clients start to prepare a formal agenda for meetings with the parents. So you're, so phase three basically involves bringing your parents into therapy. And so the third phase begins with preparing a formal agenda for those therapy meetings that you're going to have with your parents. So these are questions that you might ask your parents, you know, real, real tough questions that you want a therapist to be there for. Again, these questions should not be attacking, but they should be genuine. They should be real. Things like, can you guys tell me why you didn't tell me that my, that, you know, our grandfather died, that you told me that, can you tell me why you didn't tell me? Because for seven years, you told me that he was, you know, abroad and in reality he was dead. Why did you do that? Tell me what was behind that decision. I I have to know. Um, I'm upset by it, but I also feel like there must have been a reason that you had. So can you tell me this? That might be a question that you can't ask them without a therapist present. So so in, in the third phase, you start thinking about those kinds of questions that you'll come up with. And uh, the therapist helps the client to word the questions in a way that are likely to be received well. You know, a lot of clients, when I do this phase with them, I'll say, you know, how, what would you like to ask? And, and I'll say, you know, try to ask in the, the least judgmental way. And they'll say like, well, I want to ask my parents why they were so mean all the time, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, I don't know if that's going to go over so well. I understand where that's coming from, but how can we reword that so that they actually feel more comfortable responding to that question? And so, you know, we'll go back and forth and, and we might, you know, land on questions like, tell me about your stress level as, uh, when you were raising me, what was, you know, how was it like for you? Were you depressed? Were you anxious? How was your marriage? What was stressing you out? Um, you know, that's a, it's a more, that's a question that a, a parent is more likely to, to answer and one that might actually get at what you really want to know, which is what was it really like for you? You know, you ask a parent, 
how stressed were you when I was a young child? It's like, oh my God, I was so stressed. Your dad and I were extremely poor and we didn't know how to make ends meet and our parents weren't helping us out and we bought a house and we had these bills and we didn't know what to do. And we honestly, you know, looking back, I think we probably didn't spend enough time with the kids and, but we were so young, we were, you know, 25 years old and we just didn't, we were just in over our heads and we probably should have waited to have kids maybe, or I don't know. So when you hear that, you're like, Oh, that's interesting. Whereas if you just ask them, why did you parent me so badly? Um, most parents would be like, I didn't parent you badly. What are you talking about? You're, you had, you had it made compared to other kids, you know, because it's just going to create defensiveness. So you develop all these questions that you want to ask your parents. Okay. Then also a part of phase three is you develop a invitation letter that you write to your parents as a way of inviting them to these therapy sessions. And this is all done in the group therapy format. And again, the therapist helps them word these letters in a way that is likely to be received well. You know, you say something like, so I've been in group therapy, as I told you, and a big part of it is me getting to know my family better and uh, with the hope of me understanding where I came from and so that I can maybe let go of some things in the past. And a crucial element of that is for my mom and my dad to come into therapy with me and really help me out with my own therapy. And I'm going to ask you some questions and you don't have to answer them, but uh, I, I have some very meaningful questions to ask you. I promise I won't attack you. I promise that I love you and I, I want all of us to you know, be better off by this process. I realize it might be a little scary to you guys, but I really want you to come in. So it's that kind of wording to, to the parents. Okay, so there are three different meetings with the, with the parents. The first meeting with the parents is essentially you're just trying to make the parents comfortable because they come, they're coming in and they're going to be like, my God, what am I doing here? What's happening? Am I going to get attacked? So a major focus is just trying to make the parents feel comfortable and you know make it light, essentially. And in this first meeting, the parents, or sorry, the client, uh, the clients, they start asking some of the questions that they had developed earlier, uh, particularly about history, not about, you know, they're going to ask not the confrontational questions. They're going to ask the, um, the in more in-depth kind of, they've already asked them questions about their life, but this is a, a furtherance of that, you know, maybe asking some more intentional, really pointed questions about details about the parent's life that the client wants to know more about. So there's no, there's no confrontation or any kind of uh, difficulty there. Now it might lead to that naturally, but it's not the intention. Okay. The second meeting with the parents, the client finishes questions, you know, that they had pre-developed and the client clarifies information saying, you know, okay, so when I asked you this question, this is what you said. Do I have that right? And in this second meeting, the client also gives feedback to the parents about how distressing events affect, affected them. So in this session, the client will say something like, well, when the two of you divorced, I, I just have to tell you, it was, it was really hard on me. 
and I, I felt really scared and I felt like I was blindsided and I felt like I really was angry at you guys for not working harder. And I was really upset that the two of you didn't tell me earlier, you know, why it just happened out of the blue. I, I just felt like you guys were just giving up. So the, the client in this second meeting has given some time to say those things. And the therapist is there to facilitate that conversation. You know, if the parents start getting defensive, the therapist can say, okay, you know, I, I realize this is some tough, these are some tough things. How about we put off our defensiveness for now and, and just listen. And um, maybe through that, just listening and providing some compassion, some healing and some letting go can happen. Okay. Third meeting it involves differentiation and intimacy, that intimacy paradox. How can we be both individuated and intimate at the same time? And it's kind of a ritual in a sense. The client declares their emotional independence from their parents. This is where we get a little goofy, honestly. And whenever I talk about this, people go like, huh, this sounds a little funny. But you actually read a prepared statement in which you say to your parents in this third meeting, you say, I am responsible for myself now. I am no longer a child. I am an adult of my own kind now. And I, I am setting you free. I'm letting you off the hook, parents, for having to parent me. I am independent. I want to be independent. And I, I want to be a, a family member with you. And I want to love you. And I want to be with you but I don't want to be a kid anymore. And I want us to treat each other like adults. And you talk about that. And as Williamson would point out, and as some of you might imagine, there's some difficulties with that. Many parents would be like, well, what are you saying? I'll always be your parent. And you say, yeah, I know you'll always be my parent. But at the same time, I, I don't want to be, I don't want you to, I don't want you to treat me like I'm a kid. I want you to treat me like an adult. And I want I want to feel like an adult and I want to act like an adult and I want to treat you like you're also adults and you're not responsible for me anymore. I want to be the top of the food chain, just like you are. And, and because until I do that, I feel like I'll never really grow up and I'll always feel like I'm not really in control of my life. And so you have a discussion about that because it's kind of, you know, abstract. So, you have these, these very formal statements of differentiation, and you also have formal statements around intimacy. The client makes statements of admiration and appreciation for the parents. The client says, like, through this process, I have learned how resilient you were as parents. The amount of stress you were going through, you were so young at the time, you didn't have much support, and... You had three kids to take care of, and it's just amazing to me how well you did given those circumstances. You made some mistakes, but you did so many things well. I had friends who you know, had parents 10 times worse than you, <laughs> and um, you know, you just, I just really admire the strength that you had. When I think back to when I was 25, I can't imagine taking care of three kids, and you did it you know, so well. And I just love you so much. And I thank you so much for all that you did for me as a kid. And then you also talk about 
what you want from the new relationship. So you're saying, I, I don't want you to be my parents anymore. I want you to be my former parents or what, however you word it. And what that means is I want to be friends with you. I want to talk openly with you. I want you to talk openly with me. And the therapist in this phase also acknowledges the parents and compliments the parents and, you know, is really strength based in this moment. So, you know, for some of you might be like, wow, that sounds really goofy. Um, and it is kind of goofy. And I never do this side of the therapy because I, I, I find that most people really are repulsed by it. But, but the, the uh, meaning of it is still very valuable, I think, which is that some, some intentional shift in the relationship can really help people. Whether that means you call your parents former parents or whatever, it doesn't really matter. What it means is that through this process of really investigating your parents' life and really humanizing them, you start to mature naturally and you start to actually grow up and you start to be less emotionally reactive to other people. And part of that involves not only hearing their story and maybe getting some things off your chest, but also complimenting them. Because when you compliment someone... When you appreciate them, you're basically saying, you're basically taking care of them in a way. And when you take care of someone, you're implying you're on the same level. So when a, an adult child says to a parent, I appreciate you so much. I think you did a wonderful job raising me. That's, that's what an adult child says. And that's what someone who has a balanced perspective says. Now, having said that, Again, some of you out there, and I know many people, have parents who have been telling them their life stories since the day they were born. And so this model doesn't really fit. Also, some of you out there have parents who were terribly, terribly abusive. And to invite them into therapy would not only be triggering, uh, but also to tell your parents and to appreciate them would just be unfair. So this model doesn't fit for everyone by any means. So understand that. Also, uh, to tell some parents in some cultures that they're no longer parents, that they're formal parents, and you want to be on the same level is so counter to their culture that it not only wouldn't work, but would actually be highly destructive to the relationships. So this is not to say that it applies to everyone all the time, but I think that the the spirit behind these recommendations are still true. Williamson, as many other people from his time are white men and therefore have a particular point of view on intimacy and families and what's, what's the ideal. Okay. So again, phase one, you're just alone in your group therapy and you're writing your biography and you're thinking about things and you're getting some catharsis. Phase two, you're just gathering information. You're trying to get all this information. Phase three are these meetings with the parents. Phase four is the conclusion where you, in group therapy, assimilate and integrate what, what has happened. You talk about all the things that happen. And you try to generalize these, these new maturities and these new differentiations to all of your life, not just your family of origin, but also to your current relationships. And finally, in this fourth phase, 
you fire the therapist, which Donald Williamson called the consultant. He didn't even like to call himself a therapist. It's a Bowenian thing, you know. I think Bowen called themselves coaches, if I remember right, not therapists. Okay, so that's Donald Williamson's model. And I'll tell you that I've done this with clients, and, and it works. It takes a long time. But when you... And, and you don't have to do group therapy and you don't have to do these formal questions. But the, the, the main meat of this model, in my experience, is that non-judgmental investigation of your parents and their, and their lives. When you go home for the holidays, one of the best things you can do for your own mental health and your own relationships and your own maturity and your own differentiation is to... Get your parents alone. Get them a glass of wine and say, I have been dying to ask you what it was like really for you to grow up in in your childhood. What it was like to meet meet mom. What it was like to, to have a family. You could even say, I'm thinking about having my family or as my kids grow up, I, I'm, I'm just eternally curious about what it was like for you. I feel like I could learn a lot from you. I want to know what it was like. Tell me, you know, please, I'm begging you to tell me. I want to know. And I promise you, I won't persecute you. I, I just want to know. Okay. If, if you can do that for, you know, 15 minutes, you will find if you do it right, that that will blossom into hours and hours of conversation. And I've done this. I've done it myself. And it, it doesn't make any logical sense that a conversation like that with your parents would be transformative, but it is. It is deeply transformative. And this is why family therapists, when they stumbled upon this idea and this practice, they really took to it and they said, whoa, you know, we are relational creatures. We are not isolated psychologies. When we transform our relationships with important people in our life, those transformations generalize to everything, our self-esteem, the way we treat other people, the sort of people we're attracted to romantically. If you are perpetually attracted to the wrong people, family of origin work can change that. I'm telling you. So when, if you can do that, if you can sit down with your parents and just, just ask them, just be curious. And maybe you have some serious confrontations that you would like to, you know, blast them with, but you hold off on that. You go home to your friends and you, you know, you, 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 you have some, emotions with your friends and then you go back to your parents rejuvenated and you ask them curious questions and you get to know their story, their true story. When that happens, basically what happens according to the fair Fairburn model is you're reworking the story in your mind about your history and about who you are as a person just let me give a very crude example. Let's see. As always, whenever I say, for example, I never know what's going to come out of my head. So let's see what comes out of my head. But let's say that 
when you were a kid, your mother was really on top of you about your grades. And when you got an A minus, she said, you can do better than that. And when you weren't respectful to your teachers, she was all over you and wouldn't listen to your perspective. And when you got bad grades later in high school, she criticized you as being lazy. And that really hurt your feelings. And when you were 20 years old, if someone asked you how you felt about that, you'd say like, well, my mom's kind of a bitch. And I, you know, she's, she's a mean person I think, you know, there's something wrong with her. I think she likes to make me feel bad. Well, that, that core understanding and that internalized relational experience can be a major cornerstone or foundational element in your personality. You might find it hard to trust other people. You might find yourself being very sensitive to criticism. You might find yourself criticizing other people a lot. Okay, so you grow up and you say, you know what, I want to do some family of origin work. And you sit down with your mom, you give her a glass of wine, and you start asking her questions. And you don't say, why were you so strict about school? <laughs> That's not what you say. What you say is, Mom, I love you so much, and I am just dying to know what it was like for you growing up. I, I'm so curious. I feel like I don't understand what it was like for you. And she says, well, why do you want to know that? And you're just like, well, I don't know. As I grow up, I, I'm just starting to be really curious about who I am and where I come from. And I, I just really want to know the real story about who you are. You know, you've, my whole life, you, 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 you never told me things. Uh, you know, I think that's a good thing because I wasn't ready, but I feel like I'm ready now. I feel like I really want to know your story. And then she's, you know, she starts telling you and you start learning things. And then she starts talking about how her parents were poor and about how her, her parents told the kids, look, if you, if you want to be like the Joneses down the street with a color TV, you're going to have to get a good job. I mean, look at me. I'm a plumber. I work my ass off all day long for no money. The reason why that is because I don't have an education. I want you to get an education. And in order for you to get an education, you need a scholarship and you need to work hard in school. And so your mom tells you the story. She's like, yeah. And so I, you know, I, I hated doing homework. I, I wasn't very good at it, but my, my parents, they just, you know, they were so strict. My dad would make me do homework until two in the morning. And I, I just, it was the worst. Now, at this moment, when you hear your mom saying this, you're thinking, oh my God, that's why. Now, you refrain from jumping all over that and going, that's why you were so mean to me. You don't say that. You stuff it. <laughs> because if you say that, you might make your mom clam up and get defensive. So you say, uh-huh, tell me more. And then she says, and you know, uh, so I worked hard and your, my brother, your uncle didn't work hard. He started smoking pot. He started drinking alcohol he started hanging out with his friends and he dropped out of high school and look at where he is now. 
you know, he's always been struggling. Whereas I, you know, listened to my parents, even though I didn't want to. And I worked hard and I hated my parents for pushing me, but I did it anyway. And I went to college and I became an accountant and I've had a good job my entire life. And that's all because I, uh, I had parents who pushed me and I listened to my parents. And again, you don't jump on that. You just go, very interesting. Tell me more. And then you go home and you think about that and you process that and you integrate that and you think, oh, so that's where I came from? And how ironic it is that my mom had the same criticism of her parents as I had of her? How interesting that is? I mean, that her parents were mean to her about school and my parent, my mom was mean to me about school. I mean, it's just so weird. It's like, we're just a, you know, this long standing string of people being mean to each other about school and you think about it and you mull it over, but it changes the story from my mom was a jerk face to we are all part of a history and a context and we're all reacting to the things around us and we're all trying to do our best. And sometimes that means that we do bad things. But we're trying out of love to, to improve the lives of uh, those around us. The mother who is critical about your schoolwork might have been doing so out of extreme love. There were times when she probably wanted to give up. But she told herself, no, I love my kids too much. Now, that might have been misdirected. That might have been a mistake. But it came from a place of love and goodness. And that changes the story. Most, most things that parents do, again, aside from the super abusive ones, are done out of a good, are, they come from a good place. And when you understand that full story, and when you understand that they're human beings and they make mistakes, and when you understand where they came from that influenced the way that they parent, it, it changes not only how you see your parents, but the way you feel about yourself and the way you feel about other human beings and the way you interact with people. And so that is an example. But so when I have clients do that, they will universally come back to me and, and it's a campaign. It's a thing you do for months at a time. It's not just one holiday. They will report a lessening of whatever sort of neurosis they have, whether that's sensitivity to criticism or being attracted to the wrong person. It doesn't eliminate it, but it definitely will attenuate it. And that's the power of family of origin work. That is the power of reworking your relationships with your parents. Not only does that improve your relationships with your parents, but it also improves your relationships everywhere. Now, some of you might be saying, well, what about situations where your parents are dead or where you don't even know where they are? Yeah, that complicates things. But what some recommendations have been made within family origin therapy involve is having a conversation like say your parents died and they have uh, either they have a tombstone or their ashes were dispersed over a river somewhere 
Well, you want to go to a place where you feel like their presence is there. Now, whether or not you believe in actual presences or not. So if you believe in an afterlife, then you can pray to, and you believe that your parents can hear you, then you can talk directly to them and you, you're not going to hear much back, but you're going to talk to them. Or if you're an atheist and you don't believe in such things, then you might go to the tombstone and just talk to the tombstone, even though you know that they can't hear you. But the idea is, is that it's an approximation of an actual conversation with your, with your parents. The other thing is, is learning about your parents doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessitate talking to your parents. You can talk to aunts and uncles, you can talk to your siblings, you can, you know, do all sorts of things. Now, for some of, for some people, it's just not possible. You know, maybe their aunts and uncles are deceased now too, or none of nobody knows anything or something, you know, so there's always complications and, you know, you just do your best. But for, for many of us, there is a treasure trove, just heaps of information available to us that we just don't ask for. And that could be extremely transformative, believe me. The last thing I'll say is, so I've, I've talked about Framo, I've talked about Naj, Williamson, Fairburn, Bowen. The last area I want to talk about is my core theory, which is relational psychodynamic theory or my own version of psychodynamic systems, attachment theory, interpersonal, intersubjective, um, these kinds of things. Essentially, according to this theory, if you've heard me talk about it before, this family of origin work facilitates the reworking of your internal representations, like what Fairburn was talking about. Rather than solidifying your internal representations by repeating behavior with your family. So for instance, in the criticism of schoolwork example, you have a child that grows up in a, in an environment where mom is 50% of the time criticizing you about your schoolwork. And so you're internalizing that you're internalizing your mother's criticism of you. You're internalizing the way you feel. And so that interaction becomes a very solid element in your psyche and compels all sorts of things like self-criticism or criticizing other people or finding very critical people to couple with or finding very people who are worthy of criticizing to couple with or recreating the relationship and the repulsive in the, re, uh, the repetition compulsion, you know, finding someone who is very critical of you and, and sort of engineering the relationship as such. So there's all sorts of bad things that happen from it. Well, when you find your parents and you rework that relationship, you, you, by hearing another story, you start to dissolve that internal representation of mom being mean and you being hurt because it rewrites that story of mom trying to love me in the way that she knows in the way that she was taught and, and she has good intentions She's making a mistake, but she's trying to love me. And me as a child being hurt when in reality, uh, looking back, um, my mom was just trying to do her best. I felt hurt at the time by all means, but there's a, there's a bigger context to this. And so you start to modify these internal representations and therefore you change your personality. You change the defense mechanisms you need to cope. You change your projective identifications, your repetition compulsions change 
uh, your self voices, your internal voices change, all those things change. So every, all these different theories have a different way of describing what family of origin work actually does because family of origin work works and then different theorists have different ways of describing that. All right. Well, that does it for that patron episode of psychology in Seattle. Let me know what you think. Uh, if you've done this sort of work yourself, particularly if you're a therapist, I guess I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. If you decide to do this yourself, let me know how it goes. Again, you want to be non-judgmental. You want to be very curious and you want to set up a, a campaign over time in which you occasionally ask curious questions from your parents and, and getting to know the, the real story. You know, let me know how that goes. All right. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. Thank you.